Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Rob, I am so thrilled to be talking about the movie that we've selected for today, La Nave de los Monstros, or The Ship of Monsters, an astoundingly, shockingly, devastatingly awesome Mexican film from 1960 in the exquisite genre of science fiction, horror, romantic comedy musical. Uh, (laughs) This is a movie about women from the planet Venus who are roaming deep space on a quest for the hunkiest aliens in the galaxy and skip from planet to planet, collecting reptile cyclops hunks, kissy face brain mutant hunks, fang head skeleton hunks, until they finally meet the hunkiest hunk of all, a rascal rider of the Chihuahua Plains, played by the incomparable Lalo Gonzalez, a.k.a. El Piporo, more on him later, this movie is so much fun. Yeah, this was a real pleasant surprise. When when you brought this this title to uh, to our attention, I I did like some preliminary research. I looked it up in the uh, the Psychotronic video guide and I was like, "All right, it's listed there. It sounds sounds like like uh like it might be good. So I went into it expecting there to be something awesome about it. You know, I'd find a monster I liked or a performance I liked. I was also expecting a certain amount of dead space in there, as is sometimes the case with films from this time period yeah. of this caliber. But this one is just wall-to-wall excellence. Yes, totally. They're not a dull moment. I mean, we've we've watched some sci-fi horror movies from the 50s that – uh, you know, they might have a really fun, goofy-looking monster, or they, they might have elements that work really well. Not of this earth comes to mind. But then there will be other moments that are kind of some dead space, yeah, or yeah. kind of dull, square, lug dudes just standing around delivering dry dialogue. This movie has essentially none of that. It's all killer, no filler. <laughs> exactly. Um, oh, man. Yeah, this, this, one's, this one's great. Uh, would this count as our first science fiction horror romantic comedy musical? Yes, it definitely would. Um, and it, I guess you could, you could rank it as one of our first true musicals, or it's as close to a true musical as we've covered. Certainly some of the movies we've looked at have complete songs within them, but this one has multiple musical numbers. I mean, they're not, uh, I mean, they're, they're very, they're definitely lip synced. Um, yeah. there, there's, there's maybe only a, a limited amount of uh, dance choreography going on, but still there's enough music in this film that it feels like a musical. Oh, no, I would defend the dance sequences. There's one dance scene in this movie that is just divine. It's the one later on where uh, Lalo Gonzalez is dancing and singing to the to the vampire queen. Spoiler, we'll, we'll get to some twists mm-hmm. about this later on. Uh, but he's also trying to steal her, like, her technology, her space weapon. And so they're dancing around, and she's making eyes at him, and he's singing a song about the seasons. Yeah, true. Okay. But that that felt also very organic. It felt like organic yeah. dancing that just came out of the, the music in the moment. Yeah. So, of course, folks out there, you know we love our unlikely genre mashups. We've talked about uh, supernatural wrestling movies, supernatural biker movies. But this has got to be one of the biggest, like, you know, uh, suicide soft drink kind of mashups of all time. It's got really almost every movie genre in the same thing. I think it is most often referred to as a science fiction comedy, but it's also definitely got horror elements. Like some of the things about the monsters in this movie get surprisingly dark uh, in a way that you would not expect for a light comedy. And uh, the musical numbers are just, just wonderful. 
Yeah, like when we say they're alien monsters and they're hunks or males, you, you might think of um, what's what's that movie f- that had Jeff Goldblum in it where they were all uh, alien hunks. Oh, uh, oh, was that Earth Girls Are Easy? Yeah, you Is might that, be thinking okay. of Earth Girls Are Easy, but no. These are entirely non-human aliens. They, they, some of them are not even remotely human. Uh, so just go ahead and, uh, and exercise that image from your mind. This movie might be called Earth Males Are Liars, but mm-hmm. Lovable Liars. <laughs> but so anyway, having read about this movie before I watched it, I expected the plot to be bonkers, which it absolutely is. It is just like goobers inside out. This this movie will give you hard-boiled egg eyes. But also, uh, the musical numbers are, are charming. The comedy scenes are really funny. It just works on almost every level. It It pretty much rules. Yeah, yeah, the humor I found held up pretty well. Uh, I've, I was laughing at, in, at some of the intentional humor in this in this picture. Uh, I also have to throw in that, oh man, I love a good movie poster. And if you look around for movie posters for this film, you'll find some kind of boring images. But there's also a terrific image of the sort of lizard cyclops uh, monster, uh, yes. way bigger in the poster than, than he is in the, in, the, in the film. And he's holding a woman in one hand, like palmed like a baseball. And it's got this wonderful orange and red <laughs> uh, look going on. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, and in fact, I showed this to my wife and she has agreed that if we can find this, we are going to put it on a wall in our house. It's just that lovely. Uh, Godspeed on your quest. I hope you do find it. Now, you've been having trouble, right? It seems like merch for this movie is rather (laughs) scarce on the ground. Yeah, yeah. So far, all I've seen is somebody in Italy selling uh, uh, this poster on eBay. So I'm going to continue to look around a little bit. Now, I think this poster is the Italian poster for the movie, right? Because it's it, the title is a little bit different. It's La Nave del Monstri. Mm, yes, that would be it. Yeah. That, now, I, I think I've, yeah, and I've, I think I've also seen maybe the Italian DVD has this art on it. Um, so, yes, I highly recommend looking this up. It's just gorgeous. Maybe we can hit a little montage of uh, some audio from the film. Well, I hope that conveyed at least some of the magic of this uh, of this this film because there's a lot visually going on here. Uh, are you, are you ready to talk about some of the people involved? Yeah, let's get into it. Okay, so the director of this movie uh, was named Rogelio A. Gonzalez, and I was looking around for for good biographical info about him. I couldn't find much in English, but I found a biography in Spanish on the website of the National Autonomous University of Mexico website, and I had to run this through Google Translate, so I hope nothing significant is getting lost. Uh, But just to summarize some of the stuff that's covered in there, uh, Gonzalez was a Mexican actor, director, radio host, radio producer, film producer, and screenwriter who worked throughout the golden age of Mexican cinema. He was born on January 27th, 1922 in Monterey, Nuevo León, as Antonio Rogelio Gonzalez Villarreal. 
And apparently in his younger years, Gonzalez was preparing for a career in medicine. But at some point, he got that movie bug. He quit his studies <laughs> and he went into the film industry, first as an actor and a screenwriter in the 40s, and then as a director beginning in the 50s. And he directed a ton of movies in the 50s through the early 80s, though I don't think I have seen any of them other than this one now. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think I've seen anything on this list, though there are some interesting looking titles. I no noticed that his last picture in 83 was Mexico 2000. A which sci-fi is, movie, yeah. Yeah, some sort of a sci-fi political commentary satire sort of a thing. Yeah, and uh, there was one title of his I came across that I don't remember if he wrote this one or directed it, but it was called like The Skeleton of Mrs. So-and-so. I, I don't oh, of Mrs. Morales, I oh, believe. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, and... Um, I've also heard that Conquistador de la Luna is also supposed to be rather weird. Oh, Conqueror of the Moon. Yeah, actually, Michael Weldon mentions that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he um, mentions that as being a standout weird as well. I was trying to find a, a copy of this that could be watched. The, the only thing I can find is it's on a DVD that you can get somewhere that I think does not have dubbing or English subtitles, as far as I can tell. So, mm. uh, But I don't know. It, it looks so visually strange that it might be worth it, even if you don't speak Spanish. You can probably kind of suss out the plot. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, a little more about uh, Gonzalez's, uh, Rogelio Gonzalez's biography. There are actually two major Gonzalez's in this movie. But Rogelio Gonzalez, the director, he was also a union leader in the director's division of the Mexican Union of Cinema Production Workers. And he passed away due to a tragic highway accident in 1984. But as for personal descriptions of his sort of, you know, his his presence and personality, uh, the the website I mentioned cites a description of Gonzalez from a magazine called Cinevos in the year 1949. So this would have been before he started directing, back when he was just an actor and a writer. Um, but the description through translation goes like this. He has a clear intelligence, and his sentences are logical and precise, despite the passion he puts into them. He is tall, with blue eyes, thin, almost transparent. Sometimes he hunches over as if overwhelmed by excessive work, since he writes at all hours, sometimes living exclusively at night. Oh, wow. Now, this profile was written many years before he made Ship of Monsters. Ship of Monsters came out in 1960. Uh, again, I think this was in 1949. But I like to imagine that it was this nocturnal consciousness that birthed the physical forms of the eye-popping monsters in this movie. The furry spider beetle, the irritable lizard cyclops, the, the, the kissy-faced brain mutant, and, and the wonderful bone boy. <laughs> So like I said, I have not seen any of Gonzalez's other movies, but uh, given this, he, he's got a real talent for extremely visually charming, tight, well-paced cinema. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, a quick note about the, the individuals with writing credits on this film. Uh, first of all, the story credit goes to Jose Maria Fernandez Unsein, who lived uh, 1921 through 2003, an Argentinian film director, screenwriter, and playwright who was exiled to Mexico after the overthrow of Juan Perón. Uh, this, was, uh, this was because uh, Unsane had connections to Eva Perón. So uh, very prolific. He has, I think, 122 writing credits on IMDb. Uh, but then adaptation writing credit goes to Alfredo Varela, who lived 1912 through 1986. Now, this is a guy who wrote various Westerns, 
Uh, now, according to IMDb, this is definitely the Mexican-born Alfredo Varela, but there's also an Argentinian novelist and communist journalist named Alfredo Varela who lived at the same time, like with birth and death dates, just like two years off. So I was a little confused by that at first. And I was trying to figure out, could this be, given the, the, the Argentina connection here? But uh, okay. it seems to be two different people. Okay, now coming to the cast, uh, th- this movie, again, just has a wonderful cast, and we should start with the, the lead actor, Eulalio Gonzalez, also known as Lalo Gonzalez, also known by the nickname El Piporo. And I was trying to look it up, what, what does that really mean? I, th- I don't know if it means something different in the context of his nickname, but the only thing I could really find as a translation is that this word means bassoonist, like the player of a bassoon. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what to make of that. But Lalo Gonzalez was uh, a musician. He was widely known as a comic actor and a singer. Yeah, Gonzalez was a musician, comedian, actor, director, and producer. And in this film, yeah, he's playing this Piporo character, a kind of stereotypical North Mexican rancher. Uh, this was an immensely popular character. It was central to uh, uh, to, to his his musical uh, identity, and it helped make him the face of Musica Norteña during the golden age of Mexican cinema. Now, Musica Norteña is the regional music of northern Mexico. That's that's essentially what it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditionalized, uh, traditionally utilizing the accordion, uh, the, the 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 bajo sexto guitar, uh, and it apparently emerged in the 19th century out of elements of traditional Mexican music, along with like German, Austrian, and Czech folk music. Very popular in northern Mexico and also among many Mexican Americans. So within this genre and within Mexican cinema of this period, uh, Piporo here, Gonzalez, is a legend. I think it's important to, to, to realize like this is, a, this is a film that is showcasing somebody that was already uh, at or near the peak of their, their, their initial popularity. Yes. Uh, though this is a guy that would remain uh, important throughout his life. Right. And so as we were saying, so much about this movie is great, but – a lot of it really rests on the incredible star power of Lalo Gonzalez. He he is a, I would say like he has a once in a generation kind of star presence. His screen charisma is overwhelming. Uh, he is just an absolutely lovable liar rascal, and, and mm-hmm. the personality it just sort of like you know, drips out of the TV screen. Um, like 15 minutes into the movie, Rachel and I, Rachel and I watched it together and, uh, she adored the movie as well, but we were immediately just like Googling other Lalo Gonzalez movies. <laughs> we wanted to see everything he was in. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't find anything else he did involving monsters. So this might be the apex, but, uh, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, his humor really translates even without an actual like tra- i mean with translation obviously we had subtitles i think we we each had slightly different subtitles yes. as is uh, kind of becoming a tradition here yeah. uh, but you still it still oozes through you know like you say he's very charismatic he's very funny i think you would find him humorous even if you didn't know what he was saying I'm not aware that this movie has ever been dubbed into English, but it's the kind of performance where I would recommend watching it with the Spanish audio with subtitles just because like the the line delivery is is so funny. It's like you can hear that it's funny even if you don't speak Spanish. Right, right. And then also the songs that he that he's singing, they're I think always part of the plot. So you you need to know what he's singing as well. Right. So if if anyone out there wants to learn more about Norteña, uh 
then I, I, there are various sources you can go to. But I was, I was looking around, and there's actually a book by Catherine Ragland titled Musica Nortenia, Mexican-Americans Creating a Nation Between Nations. This came out in 2009. In this book, she explores the topic in depth, uh, but I, I found this, this particular summary rather uh, interesting. Quote, Musica Norteña, a musical genre with its roots in the folk ballad traditions of northern Mexico and the Texas-Mexican border region, has become a hugely popular musical style in the U.S., particularly among Mexican immigrants, featuring evocative songs about undocumented border crossings, drug traffickers, and the plight of immigrant workers. Musica Norteña has become the music of a, quote, nation between nations. Mm. And she also points out that it's sometimes seen, this particular genre, as being maybe less technically refined compared to other genres of Mexican uh, like folk music, but it is seen as often seen as being imbued with more feeling. And a lot of this seems to come from the idea that this was the music of working people who had to make time for music in the evenings and, yeah. and, and then put all their passion into that. That's true, and a lot of the greatest folk music traditions are do have origins like this. They're not from people who were you know full time professional musicians, but you know consist of songs and structures and uh, and and song uh, elements created by people who were you know just like regular working people who were playing music for entertainment in the evenings. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I was I was very interested to learn this. So if, if anyone out there, if you know a great deal more about Nortenia. Uh, and you have some experience with it, uh, uh, do write in, let us know. I'd love to know, uh, uh, know more about this, uh, this, this interesting genre of, of music. But the excellent cast does not stop there. So Lalo Gonzalez is uh, playing our, our main earthling for the movie. He, mm-hmm. he is uh, uh, Loriano is his character's name. Uh, but there are also a couple of other major characters who are aliens, these, uh, these ladies from beyond. And they are played by Anna Bertha Lepe and Lorena Velazquez. Yes, uh, Lepe plays Gamma and Velazquez plays Beta. Uh, both of our Venusians are played by former Miss Mexicos. Now, I know you could easily make this mistake, but I want to be very pedantic about this. Lorena Velasquez's character, Beta, though she initially starts the movie on the planet Venus, she is not a Venusian. Oh, that's true. That's true. They say they say she is a daughter of Ur, the planet of shadows. And so she's an alien on Venus at the beginning of the movie and then travels with the Venusian Gamma on her mission. Yeah, one of the, the really delectable things about this film is that there seems to be so much world building going on in it that on the surface would would be completely unnecessary for a dumb monster movie that is basically just a vehicle for a a popular musician and, uh, and, and, you know, and a a couple of uh, of, of very attractive uh, actors. This is a light romantic musical comedy with killer monsters in it. Yeah. And yeah, you get a sense that somebody put some thought into this about like, okay, how, what is Venus's role in the solar system and right. realms beyond the solar system? How <laughs> is their power politics. derived? Yeah, because <laughs> we, we ultimately have a, an interplanetary civilization outlined within this film. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about these, uh, these two individuals. First of all, Lepe, who again plays Gamma. She lived 1934 through 2013. And uh, she was a big deal. She was a stunning star of Mexico's golden age of cinema and a runner-up representing Mexico in the 1953 Miss Universe pageant. Other credits of hers include uh, uh, Rene Cardona's Neutron Traps the Invisible Killers from 1965. That stars oh. uh, also stars a guy by the name of Jorge Riviero, who was in a film called Werewolf that I think you're familiar with. Oh, Jorge Rivero. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, she was also in three Santo movies. Santo versus oh. the Diabolical Brain from 63. Santo in the Hotel of Death from 63. And Santo versus the King of Crime from 62. Okay, got to put those on the list. W- which one are we doing first? Diabolical Brain? That, that <laughs> sounds good. I don't know. I was looking. I think the, these all sound like maybe they're more crime-based Santo movies, you know? Oh, so, Diabolical know. Brain isn't like a huge alien brain. It's it like might a, be. It like might a smart be. criminal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, Velasquez, who again plays Beta, uh, she was born in 1937. I think is as of this recording is still around. Um, she was also a big deal during Mexico's golden age of cinema. She was in two different Santo movies, both in 62, Santo versus the Zombies, and Santo versus the Vampire Women. And in that, she plays Zorina, Queen of the Vampires. Okay, there's going to be some crossover here. Warning, I think I already said something to this effect. We we will be m- spoiling some minor twists in this film. I hope you're okay with that. And so, so here's the spoiler. There is a, just a delightful twist about halfway through this movie where Lorena Velasquez's character is revealed to be a space vampire from the planet of the vampires. In fact, she's going to become the queen of the vampires by, uh, I don't recall the exact plan, sucking everybody's blood and kidnapping Lalo Gonzalez, I think. Right. And there's some politics in there, you know, like marrying yes. the Prince of Mars and so forth. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, she's, she's a natural to play a vampire queen. You know, she's got the look, yeah. she's got the charisma. Um, uh, and she, I, I got to say, she is so good in this movie and in, in a comedy performance because even in moments where she doesn't have any lines, she's really funny. She's often the funniest actor in a scene just by doing hilarious things with her face. Like she does these weird, I want that eyes at mm-hmm. things, you know, like at weapons or at monsters or at a jukebox or at Piporo when he's dancing and singing a song about the seasons. She just does these eyes that, uh, that had Rachel and I shrieking with laughter. Yeah, she's she's really good, and yeah. you know sometimes in films of of this caliber, uh, you have a role like this go to somebody who just kind of stands there. Uh, mm-hmm. But no, she's she's never still, if not physically at least, like energy wise. There's always something going on in her head. Mm-hmm. Um, she was also in Rene Cardona's 1963 non-Santo wrestling picture, Doctor of Doom, mm-hmm. in which she stars as female wrestler or luchadora. Gloria Venus, who has to stop an evil mad scientist with an ape named Gomar uh, from carrying out sadistic brain transplant experiments. <laughs> what? Yeah. Wait, and she's Gloria Venus, and in this movie, she's on a mission sponsored by the planet Venus? It makes me think that this film was a big hit, or, or at least impressed enough people where they're like, this, this gal's great. We need a, we're yeah. going to make a movie. We need a vampire queen. Bam, she's in. Or, hey, we're thinking about having a Venusian. Uh, let's put her in. She has some sort of tie to Venus because uh, she went on to play that Gloria <laughs> Venus character again in 1964's Wrestling Women versus the Aztec Mummy. So uh, yeah, a number of interesting films are coming up uh, with these two. Beta is a queen. Lorena Velasquez rocks the screen in this film. Now, we also have a, an actual queen in this. Uh, we have uh, the Queen of Venus. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, she is played by Consuelo Frank, who lived 1912 through 1991. And she has two Santo credits as well. Uh, 67 Santo versus the Martian Invasion and 68 Santos versus the Villains of the Ring. I, I haven't seen that one, but that one sounds like the most obvious title. Of course, Santo is going to fight Villains of the Ring. Oh, I don't yeah. know. Who else would why. fight them? Yeah. yeah. Uh, she was also, she was active much earlier. She was in uh, 
I think two different 1942 Mexican adaptations um, of uh, well, first the, the Three Musketeers, but then also the Count of Monte Cristo. Now, another great thing about this film is it has wonderful costumes, has wonderful uh, monster effects. Uh, mm. So I had to look up, well, who's who's behind this? And uh, I'm not sure exactly. Sometimes the monster credits are kind of lost, especially in yeah. limited credits for a film like this. But uh, Julio Chavez is credited for costumes. And I noticed that among many other credits, they did costumes and wardrobe on 1969's Santo and the Treasure of Dracula, which we, oh. of course, covered several months back. So this is a Santo-heavy connection section. Yeah, yeah. And, and when it comes to the music, we have another direct reference to Santo and the Treasure of Dracula, because Sergio Guerrero, uh, who lived 1921 through 2008, uh, he did the music in this, uh, which, which has some neat sci-fi sounds in there uh, in places, which I liked. Uh, but this is a guy with 252 composer credits on IMDb, including such Mexican films as Neutron Traps, The Invisible Killers, La Sombra Vengadora, and again, Santo and the Treasure of Dracula. So yes, lots of Santo connections here. Now, if Guerrero here uh, did the music, I don't know if that necessarily would include other types of sound design, but I did want to highlight that this movie has some really good sound design. Like it there does. are moments where the monsters are speaking and it's not necessarily music, though I do love the music in this movie, but it's like the way that the vocal effects they've done on the voiceovers for when the puppets are talking giving them these raspy uh, voices as if they're emanating from the caves of Hades, you know, just, mm-hmm. just great monster voices. Yeah. Some wonderful uh, Spanish monster voices in this. It's, it's pretty great. Well, should we get into the plot a little bit here? We've been talking it up. Let's, let's tell folks what this movie is about. Okay. Now we're not going to do a full scene by scene on this one. We, we might go a little more detail early on and then later for, for the later parts of the movie, just talk about some highlights and ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, But I do want to get very granular with the introduction because I think the very intro of the movie really sets the move fast and break things tone. I would say in the, in the much better sense of that, that phrase, Um, Mm -hmm. that's the, the attitude this film has toward plotting. So the very first thing we see is an atom. You see a little like the old school representation of the atomic nucleus with all of its orbitals. And the narrator says, this is an atom. Then it shows us a planet. At first, I thought it was the moon, but I think it's supposed to be planet Earth. And then it says, this is the universe. Then it goes on. An atom is infinitely small. The universe is infinitely large. However, everything is ruled by the same laws. Man has learned to release the power of the atom and with it wants to conquer the universe. Some really elegant symmetry in this opening narration. This is almost Mm -hmm. a strange poem of sorts. Yeah. And then the narration goes on. It says, but he dreams of leaving the earth and leaving his seed on a distant planet, perhaps with the subconscious desire of starting a new race, one that will remain ignorant of atomic power and warfare. Right. So the idea is that, oh, okay, all all species maybe that discover atomic energy and atomic weapons eventually will want to go sort of uh, create a new version of themselves on a planet that is blissfully free of this terrible knowledge. And of course, throughout the, while this, we're getting a lot of, we're getting stock footage of mushroom clouds from atomic tests. Um, but then, uh, but then it goes on to say, and that is a planet known to us. So here we cut to Venus. It says, let's go on a characteristically dark night to Venus. 
and we see these creepy images of lights with a hazy foreground. So they're just kind of, uh, uh, the, the, these uh, very fuzzily defined lights in the background and mist and darkness with these figures in cloaks wandering into the frame. And it's actually quite creepy. It is. I, I, was, I, I found this quite uh, evocative early on. Now, I, I understand some of these space scenes we see early in the film are, are taken from 1957's Road to the Stars, a Soviet <laughs> film about the possible future of spaceflight. But I'm not sure about these, uh, these kind of dark hooded figures here with the cosmic backdrop. Yeah, I don't know about those. I do think, yeah, I think you're right. I was also reading that some of these early scenes are just lifted from other films. One thing I want to add is that you could easily, you could be watching this and think, all right, here's our, our sort of out there's introduction, but then we're going to go on to another movie and this will have little or, or nothing to do with where we're going. But it does come back up again. It seems to be in, uh, you know, it seems to be stitched into the plot itself. And it's not just something that's just tacked on the front to, uh, you know, keep us in our seats for a few minutes. That's right. I, I would say that actually this is this is pretty coherent. As mm-hmm. as bonkers as the plot of this movie is, it all kind of ties together. Like it it makes sense, even though yeah. it's nuts. So okay, we, we learn that the planet Venus is preparing for the most important interplanetary space flight in their history, and then we get shots of the surface of Venus where we see a bunch of. Uh, women lining up in military formations outside of a rocket ship, and there is nary a man in sight. So what's going on here? Well, we get some exposition. The regent of Venus comes out. I think she's the queen of the planet, and she's addressing two women. So you have Anna Bertha Lepe and Lorena Velazquez as the characters Gamma and Beta, respectively, and they are being given a mission. Gamma is the commander-in-chief of the interplanetary spacecraft. So the region of Venus uh, explains the situation, and the situation is dire. She says, okay, the last male on our planet is dead. They're all gone. They are dead due to an atomic scourge. And so she is giving a mission to, to, to these two brave space pilots. They're going to fly around and go to all the planets and collect the most perfect male specimens to bring back to Venus. Uh, and then Gamma says, I will bring you the most beautiful male specimens. The most perfect of them will sire the new generations of Venus. Uh, and then we get the part I alluded to earlier, where uh, the regent uh, says to says that Beta, played by Lorena Velasquez, she's a, f- a foreigner to Venus. She's the daughter of Ur, the planet of shadows. And she has been assigned to travel alongside Gamma on her mission because she's the greatest space navigator on the planet. And then the last thing she says to them is, in you we trust. Question about Gamma's outfit. Did you ever figure out what the thing on her shoulder is? Oh, yeah, it kind of has this kind of tassel-y, feathery thing, uh, but also might be an antenna. I'm not sure. Maybe she has, like, wireless in, in the suit. I'm, I'm not sure. I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be decorative or supposed to be technology. But, yeah, she has this ar- array of sprigs of something coming off of her left shoulder, and I don't know what they are. And they're there, like, the whole movie. She changes outfits, but that's always there. <laughs> It looks kind of like she had some of those like wire fairy wings, but some somebody crumpled them up and moved them all to one shoulder. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's stylish. I mean, that seems to have been the main intent here is that uh, yeah. these women should look extremely stylish as they travel through space. Uh, they look super cool. And it is it is announced via footage from another movie that the orbits have aligned, and so it is time for them to depart. So we see Gamma and Beta. They enter the interior of their spaceship, uh, which maybe we should describe because a lot of the action of the film will take place here. So there are like two pilot seats where they're operating these big control panels. 
Uh, I guess Beta is the navigator and Gamma is the commander. And then behind them, there is all this heavy machinery, which looked like real heavy machinery, not just like something on the set. I, I don't know what they were filming. Maybe they were uh, generators of some kind, like these big gears working back and forth. Yeah, the the set is great. It It definitely... They do a great job establishing it as the the command center of the spaceship. I got kind of tones of observatory from parts of yeah, it, but yeah. I'm not really sure. Uh, because clearly, huge parts of it are an actual set. So it's not just that they went into an observatory or into a factory and started filming there. There's also some some really elaborate stuff they constructed, so I don't know. Yeah, there are these big clusters of balls up on the ceiling, like like gigantic grapes. I don't know what mm-hmm. those are supposed to be. And then there is a big platform looking out over the rest of the set, like a preacher's pulpit. And there's, I don't know, various weird glass bulbs and files in the background and just rivets and metal everywhere. It's cool. Mm-hmm. And then while the credits play, we see them setting down on strange worlds, including this one world that's full of crooked spires of rock that are sort of the same size and shape as the rocket that lands, except they're, you know, they're stony and and jagged. Uh, And I guess this must be happening off screen. But during this credit sequence, we're to understand that they're out there collecting all of the males along their journey, which they tend to keep frozen in giant cubes of ice. And they accomplish this by operating a camera flash at them. Uh, and and it made me wonder which of the male monsters comes from the Spike Rock planet. I don't know. It could be home to... Well, we we know this is not the surface of Mars, because we know what Mars looks like, so... Right. That's uh, where not, Brain Boy comes from. Yeah, yeah. It's not the Prince of Mars, so it must be must be one of the others. This would be a suitable planet, perhaps, for the uh, the skeletal, fleshless being. Uh, yeah, yeah, Billy Bones, yeah. Mm-hmm. But we'll we'll get to him in a minute. Another major development on the initial premise is that somewhere along the way, Gamma and Beta acquire an alien robot called Tor. And Tor is a major helper of their mission as they go along. He wasn't theirs originally, but they say that they, again, in a strange bit of just uh, just ever so briefly alluded to world building, they say that they collected him from a dead planet where all of the humans had annihilated themselves with atomic war. Yeah, he's key to the whole operation, though, because he has the ability to freeze the monsters in blocks of some sort of ice. Uh, Otherwise, uh, I mean, they could still handle the monsters. They prove that later on. They have space flamethrowers, but uh, this is a huge help. Well, no, I think they can also freeze the monsters with their little, like, uh, camera flash box. Oh, can can they? Okay. Uh, but but he's very helpful for he's very helpful because he contains these encyclopedias of knowledge about all Mm. the planets. Right. Yeah, that's right. And these are often really funny, sometimes um, with some, uh, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, political satire thrown in there. Um, right. When they end uh, up, yeah. like, asking about Mexico and stuff. Right, yes. So uh, so eventually the the robot tells them their spacecraft is suffering mechanical trouble, and they got to set down on the nearest planet for repairs. Well, what's the nearest planet? The robot says it is Antarsis-135 sub-2, planetoid of the fourth order. And uh, so how does the robot know what this planet is? Well, he says, you know, before the men of his planet all destroyed themselves with nuclear war, they left these encyclopedias of knowledge inside his computer brain. And the men of his planet had originally wanted to explore this planetoid, Antarsis-135 sub-2. They wanted to explore it, but then they learned a bit more about it and ultimately decided it was not worth it because, quote, it is inhabited by beings that seem to be intelligent, but they do not know what they want and enjoy destroying each other. 
<laughs> and of course, what planet's he talking about? Yeah, it's us, and that's it's pretty spot on. <laughs> yeah. So Gamma and Beta perform a perilous emergency landing, and they set down in the Mexican state of Chihuahua, which is in the central north. It's along the border with Texas and New Mexico. Uh, and, and so they're setting down their spaceship. And as that's happening, we get our first meeting with Lalo Gonzalez, uh, as a character named Loriano. What's he doing? Well, of course he is out riding his horse and singing a love song to nobody in particular. <laughs> and the, the first scene where we meet him, you, you just kind of instantly fall in love with this. Like he sees the rocket ship. He thinks it's a shooting star and he makes a wish. And his wish is for, uh, is for, uh, quote, I hope for a pretty girl, but one who loves me. And then he sings a song about wishing on the star to find a woman to fall in love with. Uh, uh, in my translation, he kept saying he was searching for a divine love. But then the other half of the song is about how everybody incorrectly believes that he is no good. So the <laughs> lyrics include things like, they say I'm a crook and a liar and I chicken out in the end, but it's not true. <laughs> and then you, get, you remember when, uh, when he gives the horse guarantee? He's like, if you don't believe me, ask my horse. My horse will tell you I never tell lie and then the horse starts like bucking and neighing oh yeah yeah there's some yeah. fun st stuff like early, when you first see this character there might be a temptation to think okay this is going to be just a shining white knight you know that he's going to be a, a pure hero but then you quickly realize no he's a bard if not an actual rogue yes. uh, and but a very funny one like he's you the comedy begins to shine through and there's some stuff with him like the way he's riding his horse either intentionally or accidentally, but I believe it must be part of the character. You get the, the idea that he's not that good at riding the horse. There's some awkward yeah. dismounts, uh, which adds to um, the comedic nature of this character. You know, I was trying, they may have said it in the movie and it went past me. I was trying to figure out what does Laureano do? I, he, I was thinking maybe he's supposed to be a rancher, but you don't really see much about that. Is he, he just a professional liar? <laughs> he has a cow. Okay, uh, he has a cow. We spend a That's lot right. of time with that cow. Yeah. So I, I think he's technically a rancher. Maybe that's part of the joke is that he's because the character I'm to understand his performance character is supposed to be a North Mexican rancher. Uh, uh -huh, but okay. maybe the joke is, okay, he only has this one cow and it, it may or might not even be that good of a milk producer, depending on the joke. But, but basically all he does is like ride around singing and then go, go into town and tell awesome lies. Yes. <laughs> so we see him go into a bar and everybody's drinking and he's telling these tall tales about like how he foiled a robbery with a bunch of bandits and he killed two bandits with one bullet left in his gun by holding a knife in front of the barrel and splitting the bullet in half. So it hit them both. And then he starts shifting from here to these increasingly bizarre stories about unusual bears and then dinosaurs. Did your translation include dinosaurs? It did, yes. Okay. Uh, and I, I wasn't entirely sure what to make of that. At first, I thought maybe it was a joke about chickens. And I was thinking, oh, well, this is actually scientifically accurate in some <laughs> respects. But but then there was the thing about dinosaurs without bones. And I'm not sure. Yeah. So maybe something's, something is ultimately lost in translation. But it still came off as very fun and funny. It seems like normally he just he is want to tell stories about dinosaurs out by the sawmill, dinosaurs yeah. without bones, boneless, yeah. boneless buffalo dinosaurs. But in this whole situation, he almost sort of gets into a, a, a duel 
Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Like which, a shootout, uh, shootout uh, scenario. What's his name? Yeah. Ru- Rubiano or something? Yeah, yeah. But then kind of talks his way, jokes his way out of it. So yeah. they do a great job of establishing his character. Like no, you know, everybody loves him, but also everybody's a little sick of him. Um, yeah. You know, he's he's a likable guy, but maybe he's not really doing the most important job in town, whatever it may be. You almost get the impression that if he were to encounter real monsters later, nobody would believe him because Mm. he has cried dinosaur too many times. True. True. Meanwhile, uh, after Gamma and Beta land on Earth, they come out to explore their surroundings, and there is this hilarious scene where they just appear to get extreme pleasure from the discovery of breathable atmosphere. Yes, yep. They, uh, this is a great part. My my wife actually walked in the room and saw this part, and she was laughing as well. They're just totally turned on by this planet's atmosphere, yeah. um, and they do a great job of playing this up. Yeah, and so the two aliens come across Laureano on the road while he's out wandering, and they are just immediately smitten, right? As I guess nearly anyone would be. Uh, but so there are some some jokes about them trying to find a language where they can both communicate. But it turns out the aliens do speak Spanish. I think they've got sort of encyclopedic knowledge of all languages in the solar system. Mm-hmm. And then through a radio uplink to their robot tour, they like they look things up. They like in the middle of the conversation freeze uh, Loriano and then look up like Mexico to learn yeah. things about it. And, and then also when he asks, are, are you two from the circus? I assume because of the strange way they're dressed, uh, they have to look up what a circus is. And uh, this was really funny. Uh, Tor gets back to them and says, well, a circus is where animals do human jobs and humans do animal jobs. <laughs> I love that part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, uh, oh, and then they're also like, uh, so, hey, uh, Loriano, are all Earthmen as gorgeous as you? And he's like, no, I admit it. No, they're not. Because <laughs> it should be stressed, all the males that they have kidnapped thus far are literal monsters. Yes. They are, they're not even remotely human. They're big, like, scaly or shaggy or pulsating monsters and so yeah like it makes sense they 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 see this guy and they're like well well heck we can stop the project right here right so they split they tell him they'll meet him later and then they go to their ship to phone home they're like commander we have hunks (laughs) uh and they're gonna bring him back to venus and so uh I, i don't i think some other stuff happens here but then eventually we get back to the the home of Loriano, where he also he uh, he lives with his little brother, who he takes care of, named Chewie. And Chewie plays a decisive role in the climax of the film, uh, in a big violent showdown with some monsters. But uh, eventually, Gamma and Beta come by Loriano and Chewie's house, where they want to learn about love. Like, they show up at the door, and they're like, hey, we don't have love on our planet. Can you explain to us what love is? And he explains love by singing a song accompanied by a jukebox that's in his house. Yeah, I, I didn't know what to make of this. <laughs> I mean, it, it 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 certainly pays off in the yes. plot. Uh, but I was asking myself, why why would there be a jukebox in the house? Not not only a jukebox, but a jukebox they have to use a quarter on. Like, yeah, so they're yeah. they're having to pay to use it. And I I don't I'd never heard of this being a thing. And maybe it wasn't. Maybe it just makes sense in this film. Who would come and collect the quarters for the jukebox inside your house? I don't know, but this man loves music, so maybe it's a good investment. But I think here actually is where we start to get a taste of conflict between the visiting aliens because mm-hmm. uh, because it starts to become clear that maybe both Gamma and Beta want Laureano for themselves, 
but Laureano seems to only love Gamma. He's just like not into Beta. <laughs> right. He's just not into her. And, you know, he's very upfront. You know, he's, he, he, he's very clear that he is not French. Uh, yes, he's not yes. interested in two women. He wants one woman. And, right. and, and there, there has to be this mutual attraction there. So, yeah, he's just not feeling it with Beta. It's literally in the song. He's like singing lyrics about how he says, love is when two people love each other. If there were three, that would be French. Yes. <laughs> there are at least a couple of, uh, of digs at France in the yes. picture. And also yeah. a really awesome dig at Texas at one point. So uh, oh, yeah. well, <laughs> the comedy is pretty much Texas? nonstop. I forgot that part. It's something about, oh, they like big things in Texas. What would they think of this? Uh, but I, don't, I can't remember what they were referencing. Oh, okay. Was it a monster? Probably a monster, yeah. Or okay. a spaceship or something. But Laureano is also so lovable in the gentlemanly way. He he sort of explains things to Beta. So she she also wants him for herself. Uh, but he's like, hey, you know, you, you can't make somebody love you. Look, I, I like this other lady. Yeah. And luckily, he has some songs prepared about the nature of love. Right. And he sings them for us. And uh, so that's very helpful. And they're great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, we haven't really gotten into the monsters yet, so maybe we should explain the monster subplot and then how that links up with, uh, with lo- what's going on with Loriano and, and Gamma and Beta. Okay, yeah, let's, let's dive into these monsters and certainly jump in if, I, if you have a different name than I have, because I think the names I did, yeah. uh, differed slightly. So first of all, let's talk about this big reptilian Cyclops character. He's the one on the, that Italian movie poster that I, uh, ex- that I described earlier. This creature's name is Uck, uh, spelled U-K, Uk, and yeah. he is the king of the fire planet. Yeah, in so he was also called Ook in mine, and he speaks in a kind of brutish way. He says, like, mm-hmm. me, king, fire planet. Yeah, he, and he's all action. He's like, we're going to fight. You know, that's, that's he's, yeah. he's a, a very brutal kind of a, an alien. But then we also have a cerebral alien. And right, when I mean yeah. cerebral, I mean he's got a big old brain, a big pulsating brain. This is the Prince of Mars. Uh, this is, in my version, uh, Tagul. In mine, he, I think he was Tawal. Okay. Uh, but he, yeah, so he's the Prince of Mars. Yeah, I think you only maybe find that out later. I'm not sure. But at first, he just looks kind of like a, I mean, I will say again, the monster design is great. He's got mm-hmm. these kind of translucent layers over his eyeballs, and you can see these uh, obscure pupils moving around back behind the translucent layer. It's a very creepy effect. I want to just emphasize yet again sometimes how strangely scary the monsters are for this light musical romantic comedy. Yeah. A lot of love went into the craft of making these monsters and yeah, you're not going to watch this and think, Oh my goodness, real monsters. You know, they, they look like movie monsters of this time period, but they're, they're really good. I, I loved watching them do their thing. Uh, But he's kind of like the, the brain mutant from this Island earth, except maybe actually even more, more lovely. Uh, he's got the the big brain head, the creepy eyes, and he's got this this fish like kissy mouth, the kind of trumpet lips that work back and forth in a disgusting manner. Yeah, all of these, you know, all of these, you can certainly connect to other monster traditions and other films of the time period. But I yeah. love how distinct they are. Um, in the, the the stuff to blow your mind Discord, somebody had shared a video about the sameness of monsters in modern pictures. Mm. Um, which is an interesting argument that uh, maybe I have I have some critiques on, but you can't you cannot say that they these monsters are all the same in this picture. They all feel distinct. They feel like they definitely arise from different planets, from different different uh, evolutionary paths, and and you get a taste of their culture as well. 
That's right. Yeah. So we had the brain mutant. He's the Prince of Mars. But then there is also this uh, furry spider beetle. He's like a cross between a giant killer insect and a squatch. Yeah, this is Utir of the Red Planet, and he's ravenous and warlike, and but plotting, not not just brutal violence like uh, like uh, the King of the Fire Planet. No, he's more like you know he's sneaky. He has some wonderful lines too. Uh, he's this bit where he's speaking in this creepy voice, and the translation I had was, "I am Utir of the Red Planet, and I will devour your entrails by the light of Utar and its seven moons." It's so good. Yeah, like I was saying, strangely uh, uh, dark and and good, like, creepy imagery. Uh, In my version, I think he was actually called Crassus, which is the most different of Uh, the names we've uh, reviewed so far. I'm not sure what what explains that difference. Now, the the other male uh, alien in this picture is this fleshless creature that kind of looks like a bear skeleton that's kind of floating – there. Yeah. He has no name as far as I can tell. And all we know is that his, 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 it's his home world is a place where the people gave up their material form ages ago. And now they're just animate beast bones floating around and, and talking and laughing creepily. Yeah, they're rasping phantoms from beyond who are just uh, who are just pure embodied hate. And, and our fang bone buddy here. Uh, yeah, he, he's, he's a mockery of life itself. The the one thing they all have in common, aside from being males, is that they all detest (laughs) the fact that they have been kidnapped. They do not like it at all, uh, but they're powerless against the superior technology of Venus. Right. Gamma and Beta have it locked down because as powerful as these monsters are, they cannot overpower science, which Gamma and Beta have on their side. They've got some some powerful technology that even a, a a real strong, beefy reptile cyclops can't overcome. But of course, as as the plot develops, like we said, love tears this duo apart. Um, you know, Gamma is well, in, love is in and love. thirst for blood. Yeah, love and thirst for blood. Beta yeah. gets fed up, and she resorts to her old ways. We get this big reveal, which I think is an ideal reveal for any movie. This is a great plot twist for any film. Suddenly, reveal that one of your main characters is a space vampire. Uh, she gives in to her dark thirst, is, um, is essentially uh, you know, cursed uh, um, yeah. by, by Gamma for, her, for giving in to this thirst. And then Beta basically decides, well, heck, I'm just going to let the males loose. I'm going to strike a bargain with the males, and we're just going to rampage over this planet, and we're going to do what we like with Earth. Yes, that's right. So, so Beta uh, vamps a guy. She like, mm-hmm. you know, there's some rancher guy, and she drinks his blood. And then when Gamma finds out, it's like, oh no, that's a death sentence back on Venus again. Politics, like, uh, yeah, it, uh, vampirism is a political issue in the interplanetary politics of this movie, uh, where it's like a known crime that has been observed and dealt with in the past. And if you drink the blood of a human, you will face the death penalty on Venus. Yeah, it raises a lot of questions. Like I was wondering, what is it like on the shadow planet? Is everyone a vampire there? Or are these like former Venusians who had to acquire some sort of vampiric uh, infection in order to survive on a shadow world? Like what's going on here? There's there's something there. There's something under the surface. And it's so tantalizing because it it feels thought out. It feels whole. It doesn't feel like just a, uh, you know, just a scrap of sci-fi thrown into this romance. 
yeah, again, the movie, it's catching you off guard every single twist and turn. We we were screaming at this. Just an amazing <laughs> twist. Oh, and when yeah. we say space vampire, she can turn into a bat. And oh, it yeah, looks yeah. pretty good. It looks pretty yeah. good. A big bat. At one point, uh, at one point, Lalo Gonzalez like points at it because it's swooping down to attack Gamma. And he's like, look, a vulture. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, from here we get uh, moving into the, the third act. Oh, wait, wait. There's one more important bit here. And that is that Beta has also uh, aligned with the Prince of Mars. Yes. Uh, so I don't know if they're going to be married and rule over Mars. There's some talk of this, though it's also pointed out by uh, the Prince of Mars that he doesn't particularly find her attractive, but it seems like they're willing to work through this. Oh, yeah, there's a great part where he's like, you are very ugly, but I... What does he say? He's like, you are extremely ugly to me, but I admire your your uh, dedication to hatred or something. Yes. And she she's like, ooh, like she's really excited by this observation. Yeah, her plan now is... So, with the loose males, they're going to destroy the initial settlement of Earthlings, and then they're going to spread out and just take out the rest of the planet. But she realizes if she's going to lead this, she needs to... Uh, she needs to assign tasks to the different monsters. So uh, she divides humanity up among the loose males. So Utir gets the children. Um, that's, the, that's the spider monster. Yeah. Um, uh, Uk or Uk, he gets the animals. Uh, yeah. And he seems fine with this. He's like, yes, let me have yes. those cows. I, I will eat cows, yeah. And Beta and the Prince of Mars, they're going to, I think they're just going to get the blood of humanity. They, they yeah. bond over their thirst for blood, and they're like, let's do it. They seem to leave the bone guy out of this entirely. He shows up later. Does he? He disappears from the movie at one point. Um, He is in the scene where all the aliens, all the loose males attack our hero, but he's, he's not very obvious in that scene. You kind of see clattering bones in the background. Like maybe they couldn't figure out how to properly bring that to life on screen. I don't know. I really thought the the bone guy disappeared from the movie, but uh, but yeah, I could be wrong. So he, I don't recall him in the conclusion. D- does anybody defeat him in the final battle? No, no, he de- he yeah. does kind of vanish at that point because all the other monsters get some sort of a cool death. Um, so Ook's face is burned off uh, by I think by the robot. They're kind of wrestling. There's a robot yeah, Tor, Ook battle. Like, burns him, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brainiac guy, the big brain guy, is shot in the eye by the boy. With like a slingshot, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, with a slingshot. And, and then it, the br- his brain deflates like a punctured volleyball. Yeah, yeah it's a nice grisly scene. Yeah. Um, Utir, the spider beast, is forced to bite himself and kill himself with his own venom. Brutal. Oh, and then Beta has a pretty awesome death scene as well. Yeah, she goes to attack Gamma, and Gamma sort of like dodges out of the way at the right time, and then Beta gets gets staked, like vampire yeah. staked with a branch that's sticking up. Yeah, and in all of that, the, the fleshless one is never defeated. So I don't know. Maybe he uh, – we don't know what part of humanity was given over to him. Perhaps he just went out and claimed it, and and he's the one who wins the day. Oh, but there's one last thing I almost don't want to say because I don't want to spoil it because it's so good, but there's a stinger right at the end of the movie. If you don't want to hear it, if you don't want to be spoiled, you want to see the movie for yourself, maybe you should stop right here. But if you're okay with it, the the surprise at the end where Tor and the jukebox fall in love. Yes. Amazing reveal. Yeah, because Tor makes eyes at the jukebox pretty early. He's like, hey. Uh, and then at the end, they're happy together. They're they're leaving the planet. They have found each other, and they're flying away on a spaceship. Yeah, he, like, compliments the jukebox. He's, like, going up to the glass saying, like, what beautiful bulbs you have. Yes. <laughs>
So at the end, everybody's happy. Uh, everyone's in love. Monsters and the forces of evil have been defeated. And it seems like political stability has been maintained for yeah. the interplanetary community. Uh, Gamma, in the end, learns that it, that it was wrong to kidnap males from all the planets to take yeah. them back to Venus. Instead, she's like, hey, look, I'm not going back to Venus. I found a man on Earth I'm in love with, so we're just going to hang out here in Mexico. Yeah. Though he no longer has a cow, so I'm not sure what he's going to do. Oh. Yeah, you the, know the what? cow you was, know what? was killed and stripped to bones by Uck. To bones. With yeah. a stand. So, oh, yeah, the Cyclops reptile comes in and like bites the cow and then the cow is just clean, like a bone model of a cow on a stand mm-hmm. with like bars. Yeah. He did a great job. <laughs> but anyway, I was going to say Laureano, he's always going to find a way to get by. It's true. Yeah. He's a survivor. So ship of monsters. What a delight. Yeah. This one really is a delight. Uh, I highly recommend viewing this. Now I think I should also add that, all versions of this are apparently in black and white. I don't think there's any evidence of an actual color cut of the film. Uh, if you think back to our Santo and the Tomb of Dracula episode, we discussed how at least later, at least you know, close to a decade later, you had this tradition of shooting in black and white and in color uh, for different markets. Uh, I don't think that was the case here. I ran across some color images of the film, but I think these were just colorized uh, stills that were used to promote it. Oh, that would make sense, yeah. But still, even in black and white, this film is just, it's so alive. Uh, you'll just be drawn right in. People are forever. All right. Well, uh, if you would like to check out additional episodes of Weird House Cinema, you can find it in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You'll find that wherever you get your podcasts. Weird House Cinema publishes on Friday. We're primarily a science podcast, and you'll find our ep- our core episodes of the show stuff to blow your mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays, an artifact episode on Wednesdays, listener mail on Mondays, and a vault entry uh, over the weekend. That's that's a rerun. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 